This podcast is a production of Digital and Creative Media Works. To help support us, head to dcm.works to find links to our other show notes, Patreon, and merch. Hey guys, welcome back to the Alpha Artist interview series. Uh, my name is David DCM, creative director of the writer, and I'm joined by a returning special guest, rock star, published author, Gabe Bergmoser. G'day. I feel like I'm over-pitching every time that we meet. Like, yeah, I, I might be giving people too high of an, an impression like, yeah, of okay, you. Okay, cool. All of those things are, I, I guess, indicative of me, but not really at all. It, in, in some ways, it's like skating around the edge of what you could be. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. If you could I'll, be a I'll rock star, that. you know. Yeah, so, you know, with my amazing singing voice and musical abilities and all of the above. I don't know that any of that is true, I feel like. No, people have seen me at karaoke, they know that's not the case. Actually, I have seen you at karaoke, you definitely can't sing. Yep, no, that's uh, true. Nor can you rap, but I feel like that's alright, that's not a skill everyone needs. No, not at all. But we're here, of course, because it's our time of the year again. It's yes. Boon, it's, it's Boone time. Uh, Boone 2 is out, Boone Shepherd's American Adventure. Yes! Yes. Second in the series. Now, this is, it's a bit of a different book, um, and I, I guess up front before uh, we get into it, as always, we'll do non-spoilers and then spoilers, and I'll try and mark it pretty clearly when that happens. So we'll talk about it generally, and then if you have read it, then you, you can listen to the second half at that stage. So this book's obviously a bit different from the first one in a lot of ways. Can you talk us through a bit about like how you explain it uh, in context with the first one? Yeah, okay, so American Adventure had, like I guess the best way to put it is a very troubled genesis. Um, so originally... I always knew that I wanted to take Boone to America in in at this point in the series. Um, I, th- I think I've said before in previous interviews with you, like a lot of Boone Shepherd is sort of like, I guess from my end, a chance for me to like, you know, play with characters who, you know, I or, you know, real life people who I really admire, kind of bring them in. They have a lot of fun with different time periods, stuff like that, and basically sort of create this bizarre um, genre mashup melting pot of all sort of my disparate influences and the things that I really enjoy. So with American Adventure, I thought it would be a really fun way to kind of explore like 60s rock music stuff like that um all those things that sort of that i really really love maybe like a splash of hunter s thompson splash of jack kerouac all of those kinds of things um and when it came to writing it it was only when i finished the first book the first book was originally going to end with Bruno and promethea returning to their home time and sort of having like a very kind of closed off ending but it was actually as i was writing the final page i was like oh the time machine's gone because of yeah, and because of course it is. Yes, because of course it is. And then I got to that point, <laughs> I was like, oh shit, like this is gonna be amazing. Like I've got like this, I've got this whole like you know new playground to explore of like them stuck in the eighteen hundreds and how does that work out? Except the problem was that I just hadn't planned for that at all in an actual narrative sense. Right. So then it came to like sitting down and writing the book, and oh, this one just the heavy lifting required. This one just killed me. Like the first, <laughs> the first version I tried to do. It's sort of similar to what the new season of Doctor Who has done. Um, where it starts with the doctor sort of in this university and he's got this vault and you don't know what's going on in the vault. And then as the series goes on, you kind of find out what that all means and what the significance of it is. Um, so originally the first draft I wrote started with Boone in New York in the sixties. Yeah. And the idea was that as an audience, you'd start reading it and be like, wait, what happened to Promethea? What happened to like, what, what happened to that cliffhanger? Uh, okay. And then as the series goes on, you sort of, as the book goes on, you sort of like get those events teased out in flashback. The problem was that people who read at the time were immediately like, this sucks. They're like, it's just frustrating. They're like, we just want to know what happens. Yeah, it's coinage for the sake of coinage. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, I actually don't have any thematic or narrative reason to do this apart from me trying to be clever. And I'm not being clever because it doesn't make any sense. Because it's not like the way the first book worked where it had the extended flashback in the middle, which makes sense because that whole first act of the book is all about building up to the reveal of who Boone Shepard is. And you get the extended flashback answering that before you get the payoff at the end. So in this case, it was just annoying structural tomfoolery that, you know, just unnecessary was, was an unhappy time for all involved. And also like, you can just tell, like when I was, um, when I was writing it, like when I wrote the first part of the book that was in New York, 
Um, and at the time, the plot was very different. It was all about essentially Boone assembling like an Avengers of like 60s rock stars. Yeah. So he had like Janis Joplin, he had uh, Johnny Cash, he had Jimi Hendrix. But I had the whole problem that like for all of these people, like very few of them are musicians that I'm like a really big fan of. So I kind of really struggled to capture their voice in any way that like rang true. And it just, yeah. it just, it felt, it felt pretentious. It felt annoying. It felt too cute, but it didn't work kind of in any way. The only part of that book I actually enjoyed writing was when I got to do the flashbacks in the 1800s, which pretty much were transposed as written to the, um, to the current version. I mean, they're tonally, not to give anything away, but those are tonally much more, not lighter, but they have a they have this uh, a youth to them. Yes, um, and, and they they kind of bounce and they have a lot of yeah, and vibrancy. I, and like that, that was the one part that I really kind of enjoyed writing when I was writing this when I was writing the very first draft of this book because I kind of love just kind of putting Promethea and Oscar Wilde in the situation together. I love this idea of like the worst house share ever of like this kind of dingy little New York apartment that Oscar Wilde's staying in and he's stuck with Boone and Promethea and then the sort of three of them getting kind of carried off in this adventure where you've got the character of Jesse who's sort of like a fan of Boone who kind of slowly realizes that this person he idolizes she idolizes is not nearly as good or as capable as she thought he was. And so, you know, all of that I really enjoyed writing, but then like coming back to kind of the present day part of it, uh, I really struggled again because I just didn't know what to do with these musician characters. I liked the character of Addison Kane, who was always my villain, but she kind of didn't quite work. And basically by the time American Adventure finished, it was just this big muddle because I sort of went into it without any kind of creative vision. And that problem lingered even when it got to the point of like when book one came out last year, I was doing rewrites on American Adventure, but I don't know if it was because, you know, I'd, my head had been so buried in Boone Shepherd for so long that like I just I was just sick of it. I was just sick of writing the names Boone Shepherd and Promethea Peters. I was sick of those characters and I just it it felt forced. Everything I wrote felt forced. I couldn't get Boone and Prometheus band to write. I couldn't get their voices right. It didn't flow properly. And I sort of I sort of was a bit of a loss of what to do because I was like, do I and I was talking to my publisher about it and she sort of considered skipping American Adventure and going straight to the third book because the third book's like a lot more solid kind of where it sits now. And like, because that was one I went into with like an actual creative vision of what I wanted to do with it. Um, and so we sort of talked about it, but then it was like, well, what do we do there? Cause the third book takes place in the present day again. And it's like, it sort of leaves you with the question of, do you, um, you know, do you like have like maybe one chapter at the start that explains how they get the time machine back? But then it's like, why, why even have that cliffhanger in the first place? If you're going to resolve it in two seconds at the start of the next book. So basically we were kind of held hostage by my own idiocy and, you know, American adventure had to happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it kind of got to like late last year and I'd done a lot of rewrites, but they'd kind of felt very forced and everything. And it got to the point where we were moving into kind of final edits. It was November and I read over American adventure and I was like, mm, okay. So I called April, my publisher. And I was like, so, um, how would you feel if I told you I want to rewrite this book from scratch? And she was like, you have a month. Wait, when was this? This no was in November. Jeez. She was like, you have a month. Uh -huh. And so basically I just strapped myself to the keyboard because what I kind of realized with American adventure was that. I think what the impetus for the rewrite was, was that she'd sent me a list of plot holes that had to be addressed. And I looked over them and I was like, okay, there's a right way to fix these and a wrong way to fix these. And the right way to fix these is to actually rewrite the whole thing. The wrong way is like to add a couple of lines of dialogue that cover them. Um, but the book was so, I guess, structurally flawed that it needed that extensive rewrite so that those plot holes would cease to be an issue. So they wouldn't even occur to you. For, for people who... So this is something that when when you're learning writing, this is like the big thing. It's often the difference between like when you receive a manuscript and you go, oh, that's solid. Or you go, eh, it's kind of clumsy and awkward. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like structure. And once you understand structure, you can apply it to anything. When you were going into that process and when you were looking at those those edits and, you know, April was saying, hey, look, there are these flaws, there are these plot holes. Did you immediately intuitively go, well, those exist because it's structurally 
messy or was yes. it a process well, of finding that? Basically, I think the reason they existed for the most part was because the draft as it stood at that point was essentially stitched together from like several different attempts over the last three years. There were moments that had been written in 2014. There were scenes that had been written in 2015. There were scenes that had been written in 2016 and none of it matched up. It didn't, it didn't feel like a cohesive story. And I realized for it to do that, I need to go in there and understand exactly what I wanted this book to be. And what I realized was that a lot of last year I spent, um, I wrote quite a lot of sort of Boone Shepard short adventures set before the first novel just for no reason other than like I just want to have fun in that world with those characters and bit by bit through writing those adventures I slowly kind of fell back in love with Boone and Promethea I slowly kind of figured out how to naturally write them again and it sort of was like the best I guess inadvertent training ground to coming back to doing sort of a one month rewrite of a whole novel but yeah so like I kind of came into it and I sort of said okay cool like so I sort of I figured out that the tone I wanted was basically to take the feel of those short stories where they're more fun they're more zany they're more ridiculous they're more like kind of back and forth banter there's more um, absurdity going on and transpose that into a full novel that still somehow has the thematic depth and the heart that would justify it being novel length and not just sort of mm-hmm. you know, not another just short a novella story. kind of exactly thing. yeah um so and yeah like i but i like that was a that was a really fun month for me because like i think being under the pump sort of you know i guess necessity is the mother of invention and i just kind of sat there and like i was you know having like day after day like five thousand word writing days just kind of smashing it out and i was just like con- i felt completely kind of completely caught up in the world, completely caught up in the characters. And um, in the end, it resulted in a book that I'm incredibly proud of. And do you feel like that process and because a lot of writers don't get the opportunity to go through those because when you have that pressure, it forces you into this sort of um, this mindset where it's all you think about. And when you sleep, it's your brain is trying to solve those problems for you. When you go through those processes, you become wrapped up in it. I think a lot of the mistakes that a lot of young writers make is they'll try and write a manuscript over a year and it'll it, they'll kind of drip and drag and as you were saying like bits and pieces don't feel like they're, they're tied together because you're different people when you're writing it yes and so in that month what was the hardest thing about about getting that to happen about getting that finished you know if I'm being honest not very much mm. like it was just a really like it was just a really really rewarding time for me as a writer because it was like it was like finally you know what I, I guess in a in a sort of wanky roundabout way I guess my instinct on this is that um Back when I wrote the first draft of American Adventure, I don't think I was quite the person I needed to be to explore what I really wanted this book to explore. And I didn't know what I wanted the book to be and what I wanted the book to be about. And so I guess I was sort of flying blind back then. And it was sort of by the time last year came around, I feel like in that month, it just fell on exactly the perfect time when I knew exactly what I wanted this book to be. I knew what I wanted to talk about. I knew what I wanted to say with it. And I knew the kind of tone and style I wanted for it. And so it just... It was just like, I don't know, I just had a lot of fun with it. Like I just, you know, I was writing sort of every day. I was working on it. I was writing the world. I was listening to lots of like Creedence Clearwater and Bob Seger. <laughs> Basically, that was like, th- those it were sort of my perfect. tonal touchstones for like the style I wanted this book. You know, like that, f- that final scene without spoilers. Listen to, if you read that, read it while listening to Roll Me Away by Bob Seger. Because that's see exactly that what I'm going for with yeah. that. Um, and yeah, no, it just like, it was just a really, it was just an absolute ball to write. And, um, and you know, like I... Because I went back and I reread book one for the first time since publication before that month. Like oh, in preparation. okay. How was that? Interesting. Um, I think I was, 
I was very insecure about book one early last year when like it kind of came out and I was like, and you know, there were like, there were some good responses and there were some, and obviously, you know, the, um, now it's sort of out there in the public, the fact that we're shortlisted for the readings young adult prize is like a bit of a validation. Yeah, it is. It is gratifying to finally have someone be like, Hey, maybe you did a, you did well, you know, but I think because it was my first novel and because, you know, I hadn't sort of been working in those parameters before in terms of like getting feedback for a book. Normally, you know, it's a play and you talk to people right afterwards and everything with a novel, you know, you're not, you're not there in the room as people are experiencing it and you're not there when they finish it. So you just don't know. You don't know if people actually like it. And so I think I was terrified to go back and reread it because I just straight up didn't know if it was actually any good. And then when I did reread it before American Adventure, I was like, okay, look, I'm distanced enough from it now. I'm at the point where I need to reread it to kind of lead into my American Adventure rewrite, but also it's just going to be good for me to kind of look back at it and be like, what worked, what didn't work. And overall I came out of it and I was like, I'm, I'm really happy with it. Like it's as, you know, as a first novel, I mean, it's got, you know, there are moments that I think could have been more fun and more adventurous and stuff like that. But as it stands, I was like really happy with book one. I like, actually, I like book two more because um, I reread American Adventure when I first got the printed copies a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and like I just picked it up like I was um, – because I work at a writing studio at the moment. Like I do a couple of hours a week teaching kids creative writing. And a couple of the kids have read Boone Shepard and like really, really like it. So I was bringing a copy of American Adventure and it was like an early kind of advanced copy of them to have. And I started reading it on the train and then I was like – I'm not going to give this to them today because I actually want to read it all the way through. And when, and that, I think that's the biggest difference is that when book one came out last year, I was in no headspace or position to sit down and read it from cover to cover right at the time it came out with American adventure. I read it from cover to cover and I just kind of finished it and thought, you know what? Like if people don't like it, like with American adventure, I'm hundred percent confident that I said and did with this book exactly what I wanted to. I think that that sh- that definitely shows throughout. I mean, it, it's it's a more kinetic experience. Um, it's like full of energy. You know, like the first one is an exploration. It's introduction to the world. Yes, yes. Um, it is in some ways, I think, a bit darker just tonally because you've got, um, you know, the exploration of Boone's past and the, the sort of things that are haunting him and how that all comes about. Whereas this book is just like kinetic. It's fast. It's fun. Yeah, it and hits there the is ground like, running and it doesn't stop. There is like this looming dread as well, obviously, because because that's you know there there is a there is a bigger plot going on as there always is. But it it hits the ground running. It stays fast. It stays um, energetic. And even in the small moments when it turns down and you have a moment to reflect, there's sort of there's always something com- like you can feel something coming. Yeah, yeah. And I think like what I loved about American Adventure was just like to me it's to me what I what I find really I guess gratifying and satisfying about the American Adventure experience is that like ultimately in the first book you know Boone's kind of a mystery and he's kind of a loner and you you get like the glimmers of connection with Promethea and Marbia but you know his whole thing with Marbia is inherently doomed and tragic so it's hard to kind of it's hard to like too much fall in love with that relationship because you know she's doomed to die and you you pretty much can tell from the start of the book you know she's not there in the present day with him something happens to her you know. Um, whereas in this book, um, giving him friends and giving him like his gang with like Oscar and Promethea, like to me, that was the the most fun was like when I was writing the sort of stuff in the 1800s and stuff again at the end where it's like, you just have this dynamic of like him, Oscar, Promethea and Jesse and like slowly kind of learning to, to like each other and to be friends and to connect. And one of my all time favorite moments in the entire series is when Boone and Prometheus are sitting by the campfire right before they get to Armadillo and they have that little conversation about what happens if they never get back to the that future. Was that, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, actually, there's actually a few moments like that in this book where you suddenly go, like, you go beyond the different... Obviously, all these characters have the masks that they wear. Yeah, yeah. It's like Boone's the hero, Prometheus, like, this snipey kind of sarcastic. And when you get to see beyond that, there are these small, delicate moments where you're like, oh, of course, these are people with these feelings and they have these yes, emotions. Yes, yes. There's a particular scene of mine that I don't want to spoil, but it's later on. Um, after a big commotion and they're just sitting talking and it's 
it's just a really lovely moment and there's a few of those with those two characters and I guess for me, it was surprising to see how much that they have grown together. Yes, yes. You know? And that's very much like the arc I think the two of them go on over the four books is like, because they are both immature, not especially capable people who just aren't very good. Like, I think one of, like, to me, one of the things that like sums up Boone and relationship is towards the end where they're um, involved in the confrontation with the villain. And she sort of says something like, oh, you know, um, you know, have you walked? I, I bet you've just walked in here with no plan, no intention of what to do, and now you've been captured. And Prometheus is like, "Oh, do you really think we'd be so stupid?" And then everybody in the room at the same time yes. says, "Yes." So funny. Because it's exactly what, that's they, what would they do. Yeah. And there's, there's. I think there's some nice. I mean, the themes of this one obviously are a bit different to the first one. The yes, first one's about yes. like identity and finding who you are, and and kind of salvaging that from the ruins of your past and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, definitely. Whereas this one, I think. The themes sort of they're they're much more tied to the actual characters themselves. Like it's about friendship. It's about understanding that sometimes it's okay to 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 want to give up. Like that's alright as long as yeah. you keep plugging forward and you keep pushing on. Because there are moments there in the second book where I was like, oh, have I gone like a little bit? Because there are moments where Boone pretty much is ready to give up, and I don't, I don't, th- I don't want without spoiling those moments because they're pretty key to the second half of the book. I sort of um, don't think that's something you really do with heroes. In in these stories, yeah, so, it it seems like something that would be much more, either either less subtly handled, so like more of a mm. where, where they vocalize, they're like, "I'm done, I'm giving up." That would be like, yeah, a, yeah. But, then but I think don't. with Boone, it's much more subtle. Like it starts to come through the threads of his um, thoughts and the way that he's he's reacting to stuff, and you get the sense that it's happening rather than like the overt um, display of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Which is kind of interesting. And so when when you were going through this, because obviously uh, you know doing young adult fiction, you have to balance the. The, the line between telling a story that you want to tell with a message you want to tell versus making sure that it's still accessible. Yeah. And that's sometimes a really challenging thing. Was there any, was there anything in this book that you kind of initially were umming and ahhing as to, to whether to keep in or to, to polish um, off or. I mean, like, cause there's so much that there's so, I mean, the first draft of this is a completely different book. Like it has the same basic touchstones, like, you know, the time travel and the flying casino and Addison Kane and the stuff like that. Similar, but yeah. yeah, the beats are similar, but not the same. It's, it's different characters. Everything kind of happens differently, plays out differently. Jesse doesn't have nearly kind of the same arc. She's just sort of there. Um, like in terms of, I don't think this book ever gets quite as dark as the first one did, because I mean, the first one, you sort of have the central thing of the death of Marbia. And then you've also kind of got the human experimentation angle and like the slavery angle in Babel and things like that. And there's a, yeah. there's a lot of darkness in the first one that I'm, this is why I think I'm so lucky with Bellfrog books because they're sort of, they're indie, they're smaller. And basically I can get away with a lot that, because, okay. So one other thing that um, we might be able to talk about a bit later on mm. is that I'm currently, I feel like I don't want to jinx it, but like, <laughs> it doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Like it's cause it just is what it is. Basically I'm currently, in the midst of negotiating a TV option for Boone Shepherd with a producer. And basically the first thing he said, because the idea is that it would be like an animated TV show, sort of a bit like Adventure Time where it's like, you know, 12 minute episodes or something. And his whole thing was, his first thing was he goes, you're going to have to get rid of the guns. He's like, if this is going to get made in Australia, we cannot have characters holding guns. You can like find clever alternatives, but I'm like, oh man, how am I going to get away with a lot of what I had in the first book? Because it gets quite heavy. Crucially though, the characters... Like the heroes, I think this is the reason it works is because the heroes aren't walking around carrying guns. No, no, they're not. They're you not. Know, they're not packing yeah. heat all the time. Which no. is a very, it's very different to if Boone like, doesn't have his sidearm perpetually yeah. like ready to kind of pull out. And it's kind of bust a, caps in people's asses. Whereas if this was like maybe like a detective story, there would be exactly, be exactly. And I think that's why it feels like it's it's le- like it's not you know hitting them over the head being like this is a dark story. It's like yeah, there's just dark elements. I think there's sort of an inherent lightness to like Boone and Prometheus and their interactions that kind of covers for a lot. But yeah, so I think with American Adventure there was nothing, there was nothing in that book that I thought 
mm, this is kind of inappropriate. Or like there was there was maybe one thing that I was like, mm, should I handle that differently? And that's that's something we'll get into with spoilers. But really, apart from that, no, like I think generally it's lighter. There's there's one thing that happens in the book that I think is pretty horrifying, but even so, it's no worse than anything you'd see in like Harry Potter or Lemony Snicket or something like that. And it doesn't end badly. It's just yeah, I think um I think with the very convention, the the darker implications are more there than like than a prevalent darkness from a plot perspective. I, I know what you yeah, it's it's you get the sense that there's a bigger there's a bigger plot of much worse things happening outside your view like yes, your view. You yes. can't see what it is, but you know it's there. And that you get that in the prologue as well. Um without spoiling that. But yeah, you get you get a you get hints of this larger world at play of yeah. this conspiracy. But the actual occur like things that are happening in the world aren't as like you don't you don't see as much darkness happening you know there's you know marvia doesn't she she dies on screen in the first book yeah but you get, there's one, nothing you know, like that yeah. yeah and i think you know if you were to write this whole book from addison kane's perspective it would be dark you know it would be like from that villainous character it yeah. would it would go to some really really kind of heavy places that would not allow it to kind of be a young adult novel mm. but um but I think that's kind of the key to the Boone Shepherd universe is that, like, to me, it's like there are dark things happening and, like, and very dark things happening kind of on the fringes of this world. But when you're sort of tied to the perspective of Boone, who's kind of inherently a little bit of an innocent and quite like a light character and quite like he's always, I mean, for all, like, you know, the umming and ahhing about his morality, particularly it happens in this book, like, he's always going to do the right thing, which is kind of the point of this book. The point of that, him as a character exactly, as well. No matter what, even if he fails, even if he does, he's not good at it, he will always do the right thing no matter what. And so I think when you're always inherently tied to that perspective, the darkness is always going to kind of only exist on the fringes anyway. Right, because you're looking through the viewfinder that is yeah. trying so, not to focus on it. You know, like, one, one idea I've got, which is something I sort of want to do once the series is finished, is that I really want to do a prequel about Marvia, like, set right before um, the events of the first book, like, leading up to the first book. And I don't want to spoil... Because, like, yeah, there's, there's stuff that that book would cover that would be spoilers for events later in the series. Sure. But... Or reveals that come a bit later on. But basically... Tying it to her perspective, I think, would automatically make it a much darker, much more adult novel because of what she goes through and what sort of the background to that character is. I mean, she already, when she comes into the first book, my, my knowledge for this, for people listening, is only from the first book and the second book. But, like, when she comes into it, she's already a more, like, she's already more in the know than Boone is Absolutely. about the world at large. Absolutely. She, she, you know, she carries a rifle around. Yes. And it's, but it's this kind of, it makes sense for her as a character. Like, you never question, you're like, oh, why she got a gun? You're like, well, just in case she needs it. Yeah. It's like the characters of Marbia, I think Handsome Tom, who's on movie maintenance with me, um, he made this really good point where we were kind of talking about Boone and Promethea and Marbia and sort of these central characters. And we were talking about like Boone and Promethea as heroes. And Tom was like, no, oh, they're rubbish. He's like, Marbia was the good one. Yeah. She was the one who knew what she was doing. Yeah, she's Boone the Promethea, one. Exactly. Boone yeah. and Promethea are kind of like incompetent children by comparison. So I think as long as those characters are foregrounded, the darker, more adult side of this universe is, yeah, it'll be present, but never overbearing. And I think that maybe, maybe that's why it's so compelling as like, like, I, like maybe that's why it feels so kinetic in this one versus the first one is because anything that's anything bad that's happening, they're always kind of running towards it or away from it. They're never just like sitting in it. Like the in first the one, it, yeah. you know, the first one you get like, most of the book takes place with them sitting at the campfire and then the flashback. So the whole book is like this dark moment where it's like 
the revelation of who he is. Yes. Whereas this one's much more just like bang, bang, bang. Things are happening. This plot's happening at large, and he's got to try. You know, they've got to try and try and foil it. Yeah. And Oscar Wilde's a bigger player in this one, and he's mentioned in the first. He's in the first book uh, briefly. First, yeah, yeah, just in like that first adventure. With, it's basically a cameo in the first one. Yeah. And we talked in our first interview about how fun that was to bring in characters like that. Yeah. Where did you get the inspiration for his voice? Because it just seems weirdly, like it's weird. It rings weirdly true for him. Um. Yeah. Like there, there was one. Okay. So the, the Oscar Wilde thing is so hard because, like, obviously you're dealing with a character who is like one of the greatest wits in history, but it's like you, you almost like you're running a bit of a risk when you're writing him because you're like. I, there, I'm, I'm not as witty as Oscar Wilde. Nobody's as witty as Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Is it presumptuous and arrogant of me to think that I can, like, in any way, shape, or form write his character? Right. So I kind of, like, I kind of don't really try to, like, you know, emulate his wits or sort of have, like, you know, I guess Oscar Wilde lights kind of attempts at the sort of witty quips or witticisms that he would come out with that kind of populate his plays in his writing. There is, there is one that I'm really proud of, which we'd mentioned in the last interview, which is when they're in the carriage and, um, and he calls Promethea a Philistine and Promethea's like, you know, you're lucky. I don't know what that word means wild or I'd be really offended. And Oscar's like, the outcome of a situation cannot be deemed lucky if it is certain. And that to me, that's my little one thing where I'm like, I feel like that's the kind of thing the real Oscar Wilde would have said. Correct. Outside of that, I kind of, I feel like Oscar Wilde as a character in the Booniverse is like <laughs> the Booniverse yes, is a great a thing, turn of yeah. phrase. Um, he's sort of. <laughs> I've not heard of, that one before. Oh yeah, well that, that, that's the official <laughs> the umbrella title for what we're working with here. I love but, it. But no, so like to me, Oscar's like he's perpetually on the back foot. He doesn't want to be there. He's kind of has no idea kind of what he's getting into. He's so sour, and I love exactly. It. Like, so he's, he's always just... going to be a bit flustered. He's always going to be a bit sour, and probably not operating at like the height of his like of his cutting wits. Which yeah, to me is kind of weird. how I get away with not being able to emulate that. Yeah, that maybe. makes sense. No, that well, when you put it like that, it makes a lot of sense, and that comes through because he's clearly not equipped to deal with what's happening. Yes, exactly. So when he is trying to be witty, it always comes across as like he's like tired and stressed. Yeah, and he doesn't want to be there. Yeah. And Prometheus working his last nerve, and he just hates everything. It. My favorite part. Some of my favorite parts of that book are when are when Oscar and Promethea butt heads, and they have yeah. their confrontations, and it feels so natural for them to butt heads because, of course, she's like this petulant childlike character and then he's this person who's pretending to be much more witty and grandiose than he really yes, is yes and they just kind of keep going at each other the whole time and that doesn't he does because oscar doesn't come back to a book four he's not in book three but um but yeah that relationship between promethea and oscar just never changes like it because i mean like to me you know in a weird way like boone and promethea are always going to be kind of the central pair in this series but oscar wilde is like an occasionally recurring third part of that triumvirate yeah and in book four there's a lot of the book that's kind of between the three of them kind of in their sort of final adventure together. And it, and yeah, like just writing Promethea and Oscar together, it's, it's great because like Promethea Peters, I've said before, is a character who writes herself. Like I don't need to think about what she's going to say next because it will just, it just comes naturally. Because her voice is so well formed. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and Oscar is a character, you know, like I think is fairly strong as well. And so writing the two of them together is just an absolute ball. Like it's such a delight because it's just, you, you can just kind of write pages upon pages of just like the back and forth between them. And it's like, it's it's you kind of run the risk of being like our oh, boon kind of falls into the background because those two personalities are so strong and so domineering and he's kind of in the middle of it being like oh, i don't want to be here just shut up and that's a lot of this early stuff in the apartment was really fun to write with boon kind of the exasperated middle ground being like i don't want to be here just shut up stop being he's children. like a grumpy dad yeah he yeah. is he is basically <laughs> which that, is really fun it's yeah it's so fun and maybe that maybe that's why 
I think tonally the book, like obviously it's, it starts off with, with those sections and not to spoil the arc of it or anything, but then it gets much more kinetic really quickly. Yeah, it yeah. It never stops. But I think having that at the start means that you get, you, you get like a, you go, okay, great. These are these characters again. I remember what their interactions, I know their relationship. Awesome. And you have, you know, the interloper who comes in and then inserts herself into that dynamic. And then you've quickly you're like, bang, bang, bang. I understand how they're going to fit together. And then the action takes place. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a nice, like you get your feet grounded with, the banter yeah, and that's the kind of what I was doing. I was like, let's bed down these characters, sort of reestablish them, remind everybody of who they are, and then just pretty much pull the slingshot back and, and just see what happens. See, what see happens. where they land. Yeah. And I think that that really works. It's 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 a really fun read, and it was it was you know because so I, I basically read, read it in a day in preparation for this, and what I did notice about the way I was reading it is I was just like shutting like i just shut out everything normally when i read i'll just read like a few pages and like, yeah yeah cool but i was just sitting on the on the tram and i was sitting in in the living room and i was just like glued to it because it gets the minute that the action picks up it just keeps escalating yeah and the yeah. stakes keep escalating and there's something that you do later on we'll talk in spoilers that i thought was a really clever way of um re-upping the stakes at the very end when you yeah, think okay. you think it's you know oh we're sorted we're happy we're going to solve this problem and then things get worse again. Yes. And it's a well, progressive complication. Okay, so there's something structurally I experimented with with this book, which I'm... So, you know, to me, when you study structure in film school and everything, it's, it generally tends to be built around this idea that there is a goal the character's trying to achieve and the story is about basically the character attempt, attempting to, through a series of events get what they want and then in most stories it's all about them getting what they need instead of what they want or in a tragedy they get what they want but not what they need and you know whatever um to me what i tried to do with this and i did it with a play of mine recently called the critic as well where i tried something different structurally and i think it really worked for both of these it's something that i call moving the goalposts where it's like the character has an aim and they get that aim but in getting that aim something else goes wrong so at the start of this book it's boone being like oh yep all he wants is to get back. Like there's no, Boone doesn't have one overall objective in this book. At the start of the book, he's like, I just want to get home. I just want to get home. And then in the first quarter, he gets home, but Prometheus stuck behind. So then it's like, I need to get Prometheus. And then he gets Prometheus, but something else goes wrong. And every time his motivation gets moved back or gets changed because he achieves his goal at the expense of something else that forces him into the next part of the adventure and the next and the next and the next. It's a, it's a different kind of progressive complication. Yes, yeah. yes. Because it's never the same. it's never the same goal. Like there's not one clear objective he's going for and um and yeah i think like i've spoke about this before my approach to writing these stories is that like i don't want there to be any filler i don't want there to be a moment where you're like oh hurry up hurry up it's like i just want i want to strip it back and have only the things that are important and for better or worse you know that's kind of what i do i mean my dad read american adventure and he he was just like it's too fast he was like it's too fast you don't have any breathing room and i was like well that's what i want i want it to be something that you can just burn through and be like and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and i think there is breathing room i think there are sort of little moments of reflection, little moments of character development sort of peppered throughout there. Yeah, and they're not too long that you start to be like, this is weird in the context of this yeah, broader thing, you know? Yeah, snippets here and there. I think if you if you had gone to the efforts to be like, hey, I'm going to slow it down, I'm going to give us some more space, then you would have to like reconsider a lot of the action and how that fits in because then Absolutely. it would be totally different. So like I can see where that would that that could come from, but I don't, I don't know that it would be the same kind of book. Yeah, for sure. And maybe that. That's like that was a decision that I guess you must have made pretty early on. Yeah, well, I sort of knew. I mean, one of the one of the really big problems in okay, so the, my whole thing with storytelling is that this is why I have real issues with the Wheel of Time, which I'm still <laughs> yeah, still I waiting. I saw you through. reading that this morning. Yeah, I'm into book twelve, getting there inch by inch. Um, and also Jessica Jones, like which I I think is one of the probably worst TV shows that was exceptionally well received that I've ever seen. <laughs> and the yep. reason is that both Wheel of Time, and Jessica Jones are uh, stories that force the audience to deal with things that are not necessary for the story. 
like where there are moments in both of those where I sit there, I'm like, why am I watching this? Why are you making me put up with this? In the 10th book of Wheel of Time, there are three pages of describing a character getting dressed. And I'm sitting here being like, why are you doing this to me? What relevance does this have yeah, to anything? What, what possible? Why are you doing yeah. this? And that I think was one of the issues in the very first draft of this book where there are all these scenes of Boone like going and finding Janis Joplin and finding Jimi Hendrix and finding Bob Dylan and finding Johnny Cash and kind of bring them together. And it just goes on for ages and it's just repetitive. And I remember reading over it and being like, this isn't fun. This isn't entertaining. This isn't like, it's not changing our understanding of the world or the characters. It's not advancing the plot. It's just ticking boxes, except in a really long winded roundabout way right. that to me, I read as the author. And if I'm sitting as the author and the audience is sure as hell going to be thinking it, <laughs> why am I putting up with this? Why am I getting through this? There's a, there's a theory that um, we talk about in game design. So when you're designing like something that's interactive and supposed to be experienced, that you only want to show people something on stage that is relevant to their action, right? Yes. So like yes. one of the things that comes through in this book is like there are scenes that you could have included that like there are silences in certain parts that you could have wheeled back and you could have gone, okay, well, let's, let's, let's explore this moment and let's tell the people what happened. And one of the biggest faults in the latest season of Doctor Who is Moffat has this anxiety to fill in the silences yeah and he's yeah. like he's like i can't have you not know how these two characters met i can't have you not know this i can't have you i gotta tell you everything and in doing so you become unengaged because you're like why do why do why but it's, should that's I it. it's such a it's such a like fine line to walk because i mean you need to i mean ultimately you know we're only human and we're all going to stuff up here and there but you need to i guess take your own judgment of like how necessary is this how much time can i spend here why do i think this is important but i think as a writer you always need to be interrogating why something is here. And I think I think not knowing is... I mean, for me, one of the things I love the most about Boone is that there is so much of his past that we just don't know. Because, you know, I mean, he's been a journalist for a while. And um, even, like, in the 1800s with Marbia, like, you know, all of the adventures he went on with Marbia that made him a famous journalist in the 1800s, we don't see any of those in the first book. We get some vague references get in the second one. vague references and some glimpses. But that's it. We don't see what they actually went through. And also, like, the adventures Boone had because we know him from Ethereum I've met several times before, and I get to flesh out that in a lot of the short stories I've been doing. Mm. But for the most part, there are infinite adventures that he could have had before this that we just haven't seen. Because and they're not, they're not, they don't need to be on stage for us to understand exactly. what's and happening. Exactly, and we know. Like, I, think, I, think the books, I think both books do a pretty good job of kind of implying a lot of different adventures and things like that. And there are, like, particularly in this book with the bugs, there are consequences to one of those to adventures those that comes up. adventures, right. But to me, the appeal of Boone is that we ne- we're, never, we're probably never going to know everything. There's always going to be another adventure we haven't seen. There's always going to be another defining moment for that character we haven't seen. Like, I mean, one um, idea I really, really want to pursue is I've got, I've sort of been working on a novella about him at 15, set okay. in Australia. Yeah. Um, and basically the fun of that story is that it would kind of be about, it would be the story of how he learned that his father was a bushranger. And kind of the story of how he sold out his father. But the way it starts is that it's essentially Boone has to take a letter to Ned Kelly, who's hiding out in the wilderness, who, like for international listeners, you know, is a very famous bushranger and criminal in Australian history. And he finds Ned Kelly kind of in this, and he's, he idolises Ned Kelly. Like he straight up idolises Ned Kelly because every, in my mind, every 15-year-old boy in Australia <laughs> at the time would have been like, Ned Kelly's the coolest thing. And so Boone's like really terrified because he's been sent by his father to give this message. And he arrives at the Kelly camp and Ned Kelly's in this furious mood because he's just received a letter from Captain Moonlight, who was another bush ranger who was like a bit of a preening peacock who exists at the same time, who famously tried to contact Ned Kelly and ask him uh, or pretty much demand that Ned Kelly join his gang. Yeah. And Ned Kelly was like, if you come within 100 feet of me, I will shoot you dead. So Moonlight started robbing stagecoaches, pretending to be Ned Kelly to get yeah. Ned Kelly in deeper trouble. We didn't have to sort of shut up a second about that, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. And then I've I've since been working on, it's hopefully going to go on later in the year. I've been working on a musical about Moonlight with a friend of mine who's um 
who's uh you know a song composer and stuff like that and i'm, I'm really really proud of that project i can't wait for that to come to fruition but be awesome. again like you know kind of coming into this whole sort of ongoing theme of Boone of like him getting to meet characters who I love and me kind of getting to play like through the proxy of Boone in that world with those characters. Basically Ned Kelly sends Boone to send his reply to Moonlight. And then Boone kind of gets caught up in this war of egos between these two bush rangers where he's the messenger boy. But the underlying thematic thing is Boone is a 15 year old kid who doesn't know who he is. And is kind of awkward and scared and sort of, you know, looked down on like by his father and his family. Uh, yeah. It's like, here are like two potential fathers from you've got kind of the more cultured erudite, charming captain moonlight. You've got the more gruff, brave down to earth, Ned Kelly. And here's Boone in the middle being like, who do I want to be? And then ultimately him learning that he doesn't want to be any of them. He wants to be himself. Right. And then that, I mean, that's, that's just your classic. That's your coming of age. Exactly. You so know, that's, you know, like, maybe need a maturity. And off. that's it. It's like in the same way, it's like American Adventures, a chance for me to play in the Western playgrounds and book three is a chance for me to play in the, um, the murder mystery playgrounds, uh, like Agatha Christie style Hitchcock murder mystery. Like this would be sort of a coming of age story. But yeah, and with bush rangers and beards. Because why, why not? Exactly. You know, and that, that's the great thing about this character is like, because of the way you've built the world, if the question is why not, the answer is, well, Exactly. Might as well. Exactly. It's like there's just there's so much to explore. Do you feel like with the I have a question about the time travel. I don't want to spoil anything, but the way that you explain some of how it functions in this world, um, was there any inspiration that you drew on for how it sort of works, or was it just something that it just functioned the way that you needed it, it to? It functioned then, exactly the way I needed to function. And then you, you were like, cool, those are the rules and they'll just be those rules yeah. forever. I mean the rules Yeah, I don't know. It's I don't okay. I do have an idea of like the rules of time travel in this world. Um, Cause you did because, touch on them in this book. A yeah. Bit. Cause there's the idea that you can like, ah, oh, see this. Okay. Like <laughs> there are, there are always two approaches to time travel. One is that it's a closed loop where yep. no matter how you go back in time, everything has already happened because that's the way time works. Mm-hmm. The other theory is the time travel where you can go back in time and you can change things and you can mess around and the butterfly effect stuff. Um, in the Boone Shepherd universe, it is one of those things. It is very specifically one of those two things. But to explain which one it is would, spoil would massively spoil one of the biggest plot yeah. points in book three. Nice. So No, that I, makes sense. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna plead the fifth on that one. No, that's um, fair. That's fair. But I mean, also the, the one thing one one thing I will say is that I added that element where it says that two versions of yourself can't be at the same place at the same time. And part of that was to explain why Boone never went back to try to save Marvia. Um, but also part of it was so that I could kind of be like, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe Boone can go back in time and change things. But it's very important to be like, these characters cannot go to times they've already existed. I mean, critically, you avoid the problem that Harry Potter keeps running into. And particularly in the third Harry, well, in the third movie, they do a better job. But the third Harry Potter book has like some of the loosest time travel. Oh, and then the first child work. comes in and is like, well, yeah, <sighs> we had closed loop. But that's not what it is because... Frustrating. Uh, yeah. There's, anyway. there's a consistency principle that the third film abides by that the third book doesn't. So the third fil- ironically, the third film is more sound narratively than the third book. But that was one of those things where because JK didn't really know what she was doing, it didn't really work. But I think, I think particularly in this book, that the way that Boone alludes to the rules of time travel and Promethea is fed up of like hearing about them. Yeah. You go, okay, this is a conversation they've had a lot. The stuff we don't know that I'm sure is going to come to the forefront. Yes, later. yes. Because, um, I mean, the, yeah, the time travel in Boone Shepherd, I never wanted it to be like, and I think April made this great point about it where she said the difference with Boone Shepherd and something like Doctor Who is that nobody wants to travel through time. 
They all hate time travel. It's really unpleasant. All of these characters just want to stay where they want to be. Yeah. Like Boone in particular is like, yeah, he goes, the, the English countryside in, the, in um, the 1960s has enough adventures and enough to explore for me. That's where I feel at home. That's where I want to be. So like, so I think, yeah, there's that. So time travel... When I kind of pitch Boone Shepard to people, they're like, oh, so he goes to all different time periods and all different... I'm like, no, he actually doesn't. Nah. It's pretty much one or the other. It's like either the 1800s or the 1960s, and it doesn't really go anywhere else. It, yeah. Like, there's, I mean, we talked about it off microphone last time, that there are some other adventures that might happen with the time machine. Yes, yes, like, maybe. I think it makes it not feel gimmicky. Like, one of the biggest problems that Doctor Who runs into is, like, there's only so many times that you can be oppressed by the fact that they can time travel. Yeah, and also, I mean, because, like, the time travel in, in Boone Shepard, like... Because it's not about that kind of... I mean, Doctor Who is very much about infinite possibilities, about exploring those possibilities. Boone Shepard is thematically, at its heart, a story about how we relate to the past. Yeah. And the time travel is a metaphorical way to explore that. And in this case, the past that Boone is always perpetually grappling with and eventually will have to come to terms with is his past in the 1800s with Marbia. And so, ergo, the 1800s is really the only time period that, from a writing perspective, I actually need to go to. And because it's the only one, I mean, and you think about it from Boone's perspective, it's the only one he's avoiding. So it's the only exactly. one that matters. Exactly. So like dramatically, it's only really, it's not really interesting if Boone's like, oh, I'm going to go to Roman times and have an adventure here. I mean, it could be fun, but like, because that's a time period Boone's avoiding, the fact that he keeps getting pulled back to it yeah. is where you get your dramatic tension and your stakes and Which your Theoretically is, is why the current season of Doctor Who should work, but it doesn't because yeah, they yeah. kind of flimsy with it. But that, that idea of being pulled back to the same place that you can't escape from. Yes. It's yes. such a... I mean, I, th I think a lot of people experience that. Um, and wh whether it's an artifact or a construct of just being a person that you think that's what's happening, but often, like, you'll find yourself going back to the same places, the same people doing the same things. Yeah, yeah. And being like, I can't escape these things that I, that, you know, that well, I once was. I think just as humans, where the way... T to me, like, we talk a bit about this with movie maintenance, how um, all of us as writers are now, you know... We're all outside of that. Everyone's like been writing plays and screenplays and stuff like that. So like, you know, the guys are movie maintenance, like Damo, Tom, Sean, they're people like I've read a lot of these guys work. And what you start to realize when you read a lot of one particular person's work is their pet themes. Everybody's got something there particular, like Sean Carney, it's family. It's always about family. Mm -hmm. For me, it's always either ambition or how people relate to their past, because I'm fascinated by the way that we as humans are defined by our pasts, by the way that everything that's happened to us turns us into the people we are, and how we relate to the past, like how we relate to the things that we regret, how we relate to things we wish hadn't happened, how we relate to the times we wish we could go back to, how we, you know, we all have times in our life where we think that is when I was the most happiest. And there's this, one of my, the lines in American Adventure that I'm the proudest of is when Boone says to Promethea, but the past was simpler. And Promethea's like, the past was never simpler. That's a lie that nostalgic people tell themselves to explain why they're no more happy than they used to be, which I think is really true because... Well, I mean, you can't, like it every time you look back you're always going to think you are happier than you are now exactly. because it's a and nice it's not thought true. to have it's straight up not true no. because like you probably you've probably always been miserable like that's yes. the you know which yeah. is and an it's like, thing look, to there think, are definitely but... times when you are aware like for me you know i had this moment um a couple of days ago when like i was at a friend's 30th birthday and i was sitting there and like i was surrounded by you know all these really good friends and i was sitting there thinking i'm probably right now in this moment happier than I have been for a really long time because, you know, I'm like in a good place in my life. Things are going really well for me. I'm surrounded by people who I really love a tremendous amount. And to me, it's just like exactly the kind of place I want to be. But like, but that's not, that's not me sitting there every day being like, this is one of the best times of my life. It's me with this vague awareness of like, things are good at the moment, but like at the same time, there are things that are going on in my life, same as there is in everyone's lives that just aren't going ideally the that way we would hope. horrible and like, you're and trying to think about And those are the them. things that in 10 years' time, when I think back to that night, 
that's what I'll forget. I'll forget the horrible things. I'll remember the good things. And I'll think, oh, that was a golden, amazing, wonderful time. Everything was so perfect. It's like, no, it wasn't. It's like there was like, a lot of stuff going on that you weren't exactly, particularly pleased exactly. with. And maybe that's why... We'll get into spoilers in just a second. But I, th- I think that's why this series has such potential to... I mean, it, it takes you to a place where you suddenly associate with these characters who quite literally sometimes have to deal with their past. Yes, know? yes. Um, In a very tangible, very yeah, real and sense. It's like, and that, that, that's such a cathartic thing to think about, and the potential for that is kind of exciting in the long term of what, how are these characters going to grapple with what they used to be and who they used to be and how they're yes. going to bring that to, to clash with the person they are now. And that, that's always such an interesting conflict for characters that's to go through. Entirely what grounds the series. And entirely like I am... The, the thing is, like, you know, the Boone Shepherd series, at the end of the final book, um, like, I look at it and I'm like, there are grounds for more adventures. There are totally grounds for, like, more things that can happen and more adventures to go on and everything. But one thing I will say, and, you know, we might be – we could be a year out from book four coming out. We could be two years out from book four coming out. I don't know at this point um, because at the moment we're kind of hoping book three will be out before the end of the year, but we said that about book two last year, so who knows. <laughs> yeah. Um, but – um, but like one thing that I will say in advance is that I'm immensely, immensely proud of the way this series ends because thematically it is hundred percent the full stop at the end of the story I've been telling from the start. And in terms of that theme about how we relate to our past and how we confront our past and what the past means to us and how the past defines us. Um, I think you'll see when you read book four, what the story has been all along. And I think the way in which it wraps up really underlines that theme in a very strong way, I think. Well, that's probably a good place to end the non-spoilers bit. So if you haven't read the book, stop listening now. Yes. Um, you can go buy it. Uh, it's like ebooks. You can buy a print copy. All um, the places. Well, what's the best place to go? Belfrogbooks.com? Yeah, maybe go buy the Belfrog Books website. Otherwise, the readings website will have it. Um, otherwise, ask your bookstore to order it in. Um, yep. Because, you know, bookstores help, will do that. Yep. Exactly. It helps the publisher. It helps the bookstores. It helps all involved. Yep. Um, audiobooks should be out soon. It's been recorded, so it's awesome. been editing. So. Looking forward to some of those voices. Yeah, yeah. There's some there's of them a few that you really dug yourself again, into but, a hole. <laughs> oh, man. Trying to, try to do an Elvis impersonation. I'll tell you what. Yes. But yeah, so if you haven't, if you haven't read the book, stop listening now. Um, so spoilers from here on out. Okay, so spoilers. Now, there's a lot that happens in this book, and a lot of it's pretty exciting. Yep. Um, the first thing that I want to talk about that I noticed was there's a few seeds that you plant in this book that are going to lead to bigger things later on. Yes. But they're not too overt. Does it start with A and end with Dyson Kane? Uh, obviously, that is a loose thread. That's a big loose thread, so she obviously rides off. But I was thinking more... There's a scene in the prologue, so it's the very first like, start of the book, where she goes into she goes from her office, I assume in the in the casino, into like a street where there's like houses, yeah. and all those houses lead to other places in time. I assume that we're gonna see that again, but it took me a minute to be like, oh, she's in, like you know how sometimes you like your brain has like a little bit of lag with that scene yeah, happening, yeah. and I'm like, oh, she's dead. Oh, okay, she's definitely involved with all of this, and you get yes. you get the nice tie-in of um, the resolution from the last book. You get a quick touch zone where it's like, okay, they're dead. You know, yeah, yeah. To move forward. When you were planning that, did you? Obviously, I don't want to. I don't want you to tell me what the the places with the streets is because that's spoilers. But like, when you were planning that to bring in in the prologue, the the ending of the first book, 
what was that like like going back to that being like okay this is where i need to start like how did you know that that was well originally the prologue actually was written quite late in the game like originally i had a very different prologue originally the prologue was it started with boone sitting on his motorbike in the english countryside in the 60s and he's sitting there and he's thinking I'm home. I'm finally home. I'm finally home. All of that, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, he goes and he rides into this pub and there's this person sitting in the pub, sitting there with a drink and Boone's there to get information from this person. He starts talking to the person and they keep making all these like vague and ominous comments and they've got this big hat covering their face. And then Boone kind of just keeps asking, answer the question, answer the question. Tell me, tell me what I need to know. And they're like, you actually don't know what you're asking though. And then Boone's like, the voice is changing and the person kind of looks up and it's Marvia. Uh. Marvia's like, I'm sorry, Boone, you're not home yet. And then he wakes up and he's in the 1800s still and he hasn't gotten home yet the reason i got rid of that was that in one of the earlier drafts um marbia sort of was marbia appeared in the book a lot as like a spirit guide like basically boone had a couple of dreams with her there were a couple of moments where she would like sort of appear when he was asleep and sort of like basically say things to him and kind of like drive him on the reason i got rid of that is because i hate i really absolutely hate when characters get brought back dead characters get brought back regularly in flashbacks or as a fiction of someone's imagination the reason for that is that for me, death, death in fiction is only powerful if the character is gone. Because if, that's if their absence is felt. Exactly. Because in real life, death, somebody dying is literally them being removed from the earth. And the reason people dying is so hard for the people left behind is because suddenly that person who was a part of your life is just gone. And you have to deal with the void of them not being there anymore. And to me, it's a real cheat when there are characters who you might like and invest in and it's like oh well that, that, that doesn't really matter because like like the new season of sherlock did that where like john's kind of stalked by his wife she ghost, comes back like, for within some reason. seconds of her death and it's like well i don't have time to miss her because she's still there i don't have time to feel what john's feeling because what john's feeling has to be the absence of that person and what boone has to be feeling and he's still feeling it. i mean he's he's more come to terms with it than he was sort of at the start of the first book but there is still very much that marvy is not here it's definitely there, and he even tries to avoid talking about it as much as he can. And yes, that, yes. You know, th- there's those interactions with Jesse where he sort of, he just blatantly lies about what happened because yeah, he, he doesn't want, want to talk about, about it. it because he hasn't come to terms with it yet. And that for me, and that's something for another book. Yeah, obviously that's going to be something that's going to come back. But like those, I mean, Jesse obviously as a character is so fun because she's she's new and it's like, it's just exciting to to have someone else come into the fold and she fits in so naturally. Yeah. And she's sort of a fan, but then she kind of comes into her own a little bit. Well, that's and- the whole thing with Jesse's arc is that like, for me, another big theme, and this is like, this is kind of the big foregrounding theme of the third book is that I think there's like, there's something that really interests me is about the way, particularly when we're young, we get influenced by people because like, particularly when you're young and you sort of like are learning who you want to be, um, so much of our identity is tied up in how we see other people. And we've all had people who we idolize and look up to. Like I remember being in high school and being looking at like friends of mine who were so cool and so much more charismatic than me and so much like more talented and better with the girls and all of that. And I remember like I had this, um, I had this friend in high school. Okay. This is going to get a little bit personal, but I had this friend in high school and I remember this is like one of the most defining moments of my life. And he was the most charismatic dude at the school. And we were both in theater together, but he was like, he was drama captain and like, he was really good looking. He was like he was sexy, really... he was like sexy theater guy. You were like scrawny. Yes, exactly. And I was entirely his offsider. Like I was always like trying to be like him and he was so cool. Like, you know, he would always wear like sort of the most out there outrageous clothes, but he made it work. And he always like had this succession of girls kind of trailing after him and everything. And the whole like time I was like in year 10, I just desperately wanted to be him. And, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't say that outright or anything, but I think there was a general sense that I pretty much was just attempting to be this guy. 
And then, like, there was this one night where, like, him and his girlfriend, who I was really good friends with, came up to Mansfield, you know, my hometown together. And we went there and we went to this party. And we were kind of there and everything. Um, and, and yeah, so basically, like, I remember his girlfriend kind of pulling me aside when he was, like, off somewhere with some other people. And she was talking to me about how she was really, really terrified that he was cheating on her. And I was like, he wouldn't do that. I was like, he's not the kind of person who would do that. Don't worry. There is no way he would do that. He's a really good guy. And I fully was like, no, of course not. Of course he wouldn't do that. Like, because this is my idol. How can, I, how can there be anything wrong with this guy? Anyway, so everybody went off and stayed at different houses. And him and I went home to another friend's house. And there was this girl there and everyone was kind of chatting and everything. And I went to bed. And then my friend woke me up and was like, just so you know, he's in the room with her. And I walk into the room and he's in bed with this yeah. other girl, like we literally met that night, wow. walked in there after I'd spent like two hours con- like consoling his girlfriend and being like, there is no way he would cheat on you. There is no, you have nothing to worry about. He loves you. He's a great guy. And I remember walking into the room, looking at him and just thinking, you are not the person I thought you were. And suddenly I think that was one of the moments where I started to really become my own person because when you define yourself by being somebody else, and then that somebody else is not who you think they were, it's a tough, sobering thing to realize where it's like you suddenly you look at these people you idolize and you're like, no, they have their own flaws. They're only human. And there'll be things about them you don't like. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's why. And that's what Jesse's all about. And like book, book three, Silhouette and Sacrifice is very much about that. Like it's very much about the people we idolize and how those people have their own problems and how we sort of have to learn to rise above them. But I guess Jesse's arc in American Adventure is very much a teaser for what happens in book three with that. I think it feels, I mean, maybe, maybe it is because you tapped into a bit of that. I'm not sure, but that it feels like a very, like it's something that I think everyone, like her arc is so universal because I feel like everyone goes through that. Yes, absolutely. Like I think, well, I think it's part of point, growing up. It's yeah, you a get huge to a part point where you're like, oh, they're just people also. Yeah, you know, exactly. you, you're like, oh, I met this person who is like a famous blah, blah, blah. And they just turn out to be like a normal guy. And they're just people and they've got their own flaws, their yeah. own insecurities, their own doubts, their own everything's. And that, I think it's like one of the most important things to learn. And well, it's, it's critically, it's a difference between like idolizing someone and then having enough empathy to be like, okay, well they might do an amazing, they might be amazing at X, Y, Z, but they're a person, they have their own feelings, they have their own emotions and they yeah, need to absolutely. understand and recognize those things because they're bigger than whatever it is they do. Right. Like their yeah. life isn't just like Ben Affleck's life. Isn't just acting like, no, of course he's got not. a million other things going on and he's got a million other worries and problems yeah. and stuff going on as well. And, and so no matter who you are, and with Jessie, yeah, it was very much like kind of watching that disillusionment of her realizing that Boone lies to her. Boone tries to, because like when she comes in, Boone literally just tries to pretend to be the hero that she thinks he is because he's like, oh, I want her to think that. And that's kind of one of his flaws is that he can't just be honest with her and be like, this is what happened. She's like, things went bad and I'm in a bad place. And then I'm, exactly. Yeah. And bit by bit, she kind of, we sort of realized that she actually is more capable. And even though she was inspired by him, she isn't him. She isn't him and she's not Marvia. She's her own person. And that's the moment where she takes out the flying saucer with the oh my God, grenade at the, the end, grenade. which yeah, is sort of her big wow. defining hero that moment. That was such a moment. You know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that moment so much. There's I was a few like, of those in this. I've peaked as a writer, I think, when I'm having somebody it's taking out a flying saucer <laughs> with a grenade sl- shot from a slingshot. Like, how like, do you top that? I feel like you can't. That's not... No, I, I, I don't think I can. Like, I mean, there's, the scene... There's a scene in the middle where Boone is chasing the metal worker oh, the train, through the New train York sequence. and then he gets in the train sequence. That whole thing, like, I don't know why, but like that to me, it felt like I was like, oh, that's like an action movie. Like I would yeah, see yeah. that. That's what I wanted to be. I was like, I was like, look, I'm going to, because I'd never really written like a really extended action scene. Like ten, I tend to have like bursts of action here and there, but I've never written like a really long drawn out just where it's just like 
Now, you know, now they're running out of the metal shop. Now they're like running down the street. Now he's stolen a motorbike. Now he's stolen a car. Now they're in the subway. Now he's off the bike. Now he's hanging off the back of the subway. Now they're fighting on the subway now. And like, so, you know, I was like, when I came into writing that scene, I was like, I just want to write like a really long, protracted, drawn out action sequence. And I was, yeah, I was really, it was a really fun thing to write and kind of a really, a scene I really, really like. So it's so punchy too. And maybe this, you probably spent a lot of time on trying to like get it the right shape, but it's, there's a lot of distance covered in the world, but, and there's a lot of time that passes in the world, but it, it, it happens quite quickly in the yes. prose itself. And that's why it feels like a, this really high-octane moment. Yeah. Whereas if you spend... I mean, you t- we talk about this a lot in writing, which is like the amount of time something happens on the page is going to make the reader feel that time. So if you yeah, want to have yeah. like a, if you have like a really critical action moment where two characters are having like a, a sword duel and you explain it in incredible detail, the reader's going to feel like it's happening over a length of time. Yes. Whereas if the fight is like... One, two, someone's down. Then you go, oh, that was a quick, like, fast fight or whatever. And this was very much the same where it was like, oh, they're running, they're running, they're okay, they're, 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 he stole the police car, and now he's got the bike, and now they're in the subway, and oh, my God, he's jumped on the subway, and then the, yeah, and it yeah. just keeps happening, and then you get to the end of it, and you're like, oh, my God, okay. And the insanity oh. just slowly escalates. Well, not yeah. just, like, just <laughs> speedily escalates. It's crazy. Just, and then, yeah. it's, then it's like, okay, now, and there's the moment where Boone's on the bike, and he's about to jump off it, and you're like, is he really going to do that? Yeah, and he goes to himself. He's like, "Am I going to do this? I guess I am." I really, I really, really grappled with the editor over that. She was like, "That's dumb. Wouldn't work." And I was like, "Yes, it would. Shut up. He can jump off a bike onto a train. This is the Booniverse." I mean, I'm not 100 percent sure of the physics of it. (laughs) No, no, neither am I. But like, also flying casino. So like, really, you know what? You make a valid point. (laughs) When all is said and done, yeah. I mean, look, if we're if we're quibbling about stuff, flying saucer. Yes, yes, exactly. I feel like at that point, you're probably fine. Yeah, but no, it, it it's such a fun. Such a fun way to treat that action too, because I think there's a tendency sometimes with sequels to be like, I've got to up the ante of like the action itself. So like, yeah, you know how for like, sure, for sure. We think about just like straight like action films. They'll be like, well, if in one, if in the first film we flipped a car, in the second film we've got to flip ten cars, and you look at the Fast and Furious, and they're like, oh my god, yeah, cars like, and tanks and torpedoes, yeah, and, and, and a submarine and and that ice and jets. How what? do we? Well, yeah, I think like Joss <laughs> Whedon had this great comment as well, like yeah. where he said something that I think rang true except i don't think he really followed his own advice where somebody was like how are you going to make the second avengers bigger than the first one he was like by not making it bigger by making it smaller so like with this i kind of want to do the same thing where it's like american adventure is a lot more action-packed than boone shepherd but the third book will be a lot less action-packed the third book's more like a detective and the story. stakes are higher exactly so like the third book has i think much higher emotional stakes i mean because like american adventure is probably american adventure is like one of the more high stakes ones because it's literally the world is at stake I mean, because, that, we'll talk about that in a second, but I've got some stuff yeah. that I want to discuss about yeah, the way yeah, that sure. that progressive complication happens. But no, you're definitely right. Like, it, it, you go from the first book, which is like... It's a prison, yeah. whereas the second book is the world. I mean, and, ironically, though, maybe maybe it's because of the way that Darius's plan plays out. But, like, in that first book, you get this looming sense of this bigger plot. Yeah, and in this yeah. one, you get the confirmation that something bigger was happening. Yeah. But also the knowledge that there's still something bigger than that happening. Yes, yes. And so in this one, I want to talk about the ending because you did some really clever stuff that I was really impressed by with the way that the stakes yeah. plays out. So in writing, for people who haven't really studied much of it, we talk about progressively complicating a story, which basically means that you have like an inciting hook, so like an inciting incident, uh, and then things get more and more complicated for your hero until they reach like a crisis point. So they have to make a decision or they have to do something that's going to either result in one thing it's like um uh, it's like your all is lost moment where it's like yeah, now yeah. i have to make a decision and it's either gonna be it's like irreconcilable goods or 
best bad choice or whatever. You get to that moment, they make a decision, things happen, then you have your resolution. Yes. Something you did really interestingly in this one is when you get to the flying casino, so you have the Elvis scene, they you you sort of you, you suddenly are like, oh, he's working with Elvis. That's really cool. And Elvis and speaks only in Elvis is. quotes. <laughs> So good. I love oh the the sequence where he like is doing the um the the out the sto- the song names in his conversation. Oh, yeah, that, that was, was so, so funny. much fun to write. That was one of those moments where I just like was giggling at my own audacity <laughs> all the way through it because it's, it's just such a strong move. Absurd. It's Absolutely. just completely absurd. And Boone just doesn't know who he is. He's like who. What is, I love that all of the, everyone else is like, they think that Boone is kidding when he doesn't know either. That's, yeah, so, that's yeah. a really fun And so moment. nobody actually tells him who he is because no, they're just like, they're oh, like, you're of kidding. Of course, how could you not how know you who know? he is? Yeah. But there's something, so there's something to me that I, that, that I was really interested in. So they get to the flying casino and they realize what's going on. And you get this like really cool tactile scene with Addison Kane where she sort of, she, she's sort of very, um, she, she taps into something in Boone that we haven't really seen before. Yes, she which does. Which is this tendency for him to be attracted to danger. Yes. And she's dangerous, and there's definitely, like, a mutual attraction between and them. And that, with Addison Kane, one thing I wanted to do, like, in fact, like, one of the one of her kind of inspirations, weirdly, was, <laughs> I can't believe I'm admitting this, <laughs> uh, 300 Rise of an Empire, the second 300 film. I have film. not seen that. Okay, one. it's... Like, all right, I had other I, things on that day. <laughs> mm, yeah, I was scheduled to stare at my wall that day. Yeah. No, I'm like, I actually quite enjoy that film, like mainly because of Eva Green and because you've got this female sort of warlord character who basically wields sexuality like a weapon. Yeah. And a lot of that, there's this one scene where literally it's her having sex with the hero while they're beating the crap out of each other and negotiating. And it's just insane. And it's, but like, it, it, I don't know. I, I just found that film, I just found the insanity and audacity of that whole character really fun. But um, with Addison, obviously, <laughs> you're never going to go that far because it's a, you know, children's book. But, um, but I kind of like the idea of, you know, obviously, like, it's not a world where sex doesn't exist because, you know, people are born. And also, like, there is a pointed bit in the first book where, like, where Boone's writing a letter and Marby is, like, in the bed behind him asleep. And it's like, okay, like, let's face it. Like, we know what's going on here. But, um, but like with Addison, it's like, I kind of like the idea that for the first time Boone is sort of challenged in like almost a sexual way. It's, it's definitely, like, it's definitely an emotional. Yes. And she knows that he's attracted to her and he, she, and the, the other thing that makes it so threatening is she works, she knows immediately. Oh yeah. Because she knows that he's attracted to danger and yeah. she is dangerous. And even Boone, I don't even think Boone is capable of admitting to himself that he like kind of looks at Addison and is like, oh boy. And he goes, but, so, yeah, yeah, and that, and that, that, that's so you get like that emotional stake immediately, yeah, and then you do this really clever thing where you get the emotional stake, and you're like, oh my god, this is not going to go well for Boone, yeah. and then you get, okay, there's the emotional stake, and now here's the external stake of the president's here, things are going to be bad, it's not going to be great, and then you're like, oh my god, things are so bad, and then Promethea turns up, and you're like, what? And then it's like, she's going to get killed. And you go, oh my God, it's like, it's, it's emotional. And everything just like raises and you're like, oh, this is not good. Things are going to be bad. Yeah, it gets a wee bit tangled there at the end. Yeah, um, and it's, it's like a lot of feelings and it gets really like stressful. And that's that progressive complication. And then it gets sort of, you get a nice reprieve just before the penultimate moment where he sort of, he falls off and um, he has the, this, the meets conversation. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Um, and then, you know, he comes back on and he's sort of, He's back in the game, basically. Yeah, yeah. Because, and I mean, he, you know. That's the moment I was kind of referring to earlier with the moment where he legitimately gives up. He lets Addison win for Promethea. He's like, I, I can't let you kill her. I'm sorry. I, you win. Um, which, you know, is something that I don't think heroes often get to do. But then, I mean, he comes back and will always do the right thing, of course, because that's Boone. But, um, but, you know, Addison Kane was a really, really fun character to play with because she's a villain that, you know, we haven't yet seen in this universe. Um, 
the villains of the next two books will be very different. I mean, obviously Addison Kane will recur. She's sort of, to me, she's like a little bit like a combination of like the Joker and Catwoman, if Boone's yeah. Batman. You know? That makes sense. Like, yeah, she's sort of that 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 more seductive side of his personality. Absolutely, um, and, and it's like the danger. She doesn't that have comes the moral ambiguity of Catwoman because she's not morally ambiguous. She's morally evil. Like she is the closest thing to pure evil you probably are going to see in this world. And there's something but, thoroughly, like. Uh, intriguing about someone that, that that's that self-aware like she oh, says yeah. it herself she's like i'm a bad person i'm not to she doesn't apologize for yeah. it she's just like and that's her whole thing with Boone. she's like she pretty much her argument is which i actually think has not some merit but like it's like my, my recent play springsteen which we did as a radio play with sans pants radio that's got this theme this this line in there which i think is probably the thematic underpinning of that whole story and the line is where bruce springsteen's future wife says to him um you can only be who you are you can only be the person you are, which I think is true. But then I think it also kind of the person you are has a choice to act in certain ways. And if the person you are is somebody who's just perpetually doing bad things and you're like, well, that's just who I am. Can't help it. Yeah. It's like, that's when that argument, the logic there becomes incredibly faulty. And in well, Addison yeah, Kane's yeah. case, she's like, it's just who I am. Can't help it. Sorry. I'm a bad person. Whereas Boone is like, I know I'm flawed. I know I've got things that are wrong with me, but who he is is perpetually trying to better himself. Where she, and you know, you know what it is, and maybe this 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 comes through a lot in this book. And I, I don't know, there's there's a real strength to it, particularly toward the middle with Boone, where you start to realize that the moral complexity of his character that you see in the first book of him trying to grapple with, like, who am I? What does this mean? What does it mean to be Boone Shepherd in this world now? The Boone Shepherd was the guy that traveled with Marbia. Am I still that? And in this one, you get very much him going. There's a loss of identity. That's how the book starts. He doesn't know really who he is. But what you start to realize as it goes on and his interactions with Jesse and then the, you know, being stranded by himself and taking those actions to solve those problems is it's it's not naivete to maturity, but it's naivete to an understanding that he's a summary of his actions. He's not like yes. a name. He's not yes. he's not Boone Shepherd. He's I'm me and I'm the person that does these things and, and I do the right thing. And that's why that final moment with Addison in the desert is so important to his character because it's like, to me, it almost sums, it, it sums up Boone Shepard in, in like, in a sentence basically because it's like, you know, he goes after Addison, he has a plan, he tries, the plan fails, Addison essentially wins and gets away, but that's who he is. He's somebody who will always do the right thing even if he's not equipped to do it, even if he will fail, even if all of that, he will keep trying. And that's what defines him because like, you know, what defines, to me, what defines a hero and what defines a good person isn't your capability or your success rate. What defines is what defines that is you being somebody who will always try to do the right thing and will the person always that gets try. up. Yes. You know, that's I mean, that's one of the that's one of the big lessons that you learn in life is like really successful people aren't the ones that have like a million Twitter followers or like have, you know, ten yachts and five Lamborghinis. Yeah, yeah. It's the people that sit down every day to do the thing that they want to do and they work hard at it yes. and they do their best to and they do get their best down work again and again and they and still they just get keep up doing and they it. still do what they have to do and that's that's kind of I think what I admire the most about Boone as a character is that like that's kind of where he sits at the end of this it's like yeah he doesn't plan ahead and yeah he's not particularly bright and yeah he does screw up here and there and he you know he will fail and he will be reckless and he will be impetuous but he will always no matter what the one thing you can rely upon he will always try to save who he can and that's such a that's such a um I don't know. It's such an important story that we need to keep telling in fiction because it lets us know that it's okay that you do get knocked down. Yes, you have absolutely. Those moments. It's okay to fail. That's what happens. That's part of life. Yeah. And, and it's like sometimes you, you lose stuff along the way. And, and that's, I mean, the first book's focus is like, how do you come back from that? And how do you find an identity? And then this one is knowing that you've lost that 
how do you reform? Like, how do you find yourself again? Yes. And, you know, some of the coolest parts of the book are when you go from, I mean, we talked about the campfire scene with Promethea, um, or we alluded to it earlier. But that moment where you realize that it's so telling about both of those characters because they Prometheus reveals something, and the way that Boone deals with that and treats that, um, uh, the her exposing herself to him in an emotional way, the way that he deals with that tells you so much about both of them and their relationship yeah. and it's how they how they've traveled in the whole series. My favorite of them is when I was I was trying to allude to it earlier with yeah. playing, but when uh, they're on the um, flying saucer and they've just uh, I can't think of the context of it, but I think. On the stage after yeah. Jesse's been taken. And they have that nice little moment where she's Prometheus kind of a bit out of it. And they both they're both like sort of pretending to try and be snippy, but they can't really manage it. And he just kind of puts his arm around her and they just sort of they just enjoy being close to each other. Yes. And it's such a it's such a moment. Like it's one of those things where in real life, those are the moments that you're like that that's a defining moment for me. Like that's a turning yeah, point for yeah. me. And that's such a, it's such a lovely moment. I had like a little, I had like, I was like, Oh, like yeah, I don't there's a, a couple of moments in here that I was trying to uh, tug the heartstrings a bit, particularly the very ending of the book. Cause originally I was like, originally I was just going to kind of gun for another cliffhanger. Like I was going to have a cliffhanger that would lead into book three. And the more I tried to write it, the more it just kind of felt really disingenuous, particularly at the end of this story. And so instead I kind of went for a moment of like closure of just like Boone and Prometheus sitting on the time machine, looking out to the future being like, okay, we've dealt with the past to a degree. It will come back because, of course, it does. But for now, it's like, let's look ahead. Let's move on. And let's move on as friends. Like, no more of this, like, even though, of course, their relationship's never going to change. Like, they're always going to be gonna snarky and snipey other, and everything. Yeah. But, but the love that I think connects the two of them and that very, very deep connection, that – and you'll see coming into book three, book three starts with them as a team. And for the first time, we actually see them as a working team where it's like, no, we work together, we're partners. We work together on every story. We solve the mysteries together. And that's kind of – so book three, I guess, is like – and that's why kind of I think that ending of book two is so appropriate because book three is the book that will test that like to its right. absolute limits. It's, it's the difference between like the first Guardians of the Galaxy, they come together as a team yes. and they say the, the second one is like, is that going to work? Is, yeah. Are they going to be able to be a team? And that's very much what book three is for Boone and Promethea. It's like, okay, when, when things go – very wrong in a way that nobody could have expected. How do do they deal with that? And there's like book three is them being torn apart and like very much it's them being torn apart and then having to put themselves back together stronger again. Which is a really hard thing to have to do like as like in real life, it's hard to do when you're like, crap, we, we had some bad stuff happen. We got to try and reform ourselves. And do you feel like with this book in particular, and I don't know if I was just like reading into it, I don't know, but the relationship they have and the way that it, kind of like the way they bring other people into the fold. So like you've got Oscar and you've got um, Jesse. Jesse. And, yeah. and sort of even like some of the peripheral characters that they bump past and through where it's like, it very much feels like they have this malleable outer circle where they're like, we'll let other people into this pairing and this team because that's the kind of people we are. Were you Are you like conscious of trying to keep them as a unit or is it just a natural kind of... Look, it's... I was actually thinking about this the other day because um, Elise, who's also on Move Maintenance, um, she spoke to me after she read the manuscript like, because she, you know, was giving me feedback and everything on it. And um, she spoke to me and she was kind of wondering why Promethea disappears for such a long time in this book. And I was like, well, actually, she does in the first book as well because you've got the extended flashback and you've got the time in Babel where Boone's, like, confronting Darius and everything and he doesn't see Promethea in that time. And then the third book and the fourth book both have big extended parts where she's not in it as well. And... That wasn't by design. I think that's just kind of naturally because Promethea is such a dominating, strong, fun-to-write character that your temptation becomes to kind of do sort of, I guess, a Pirates of the Caribbean and just kind of foreground the Jack Sparrow at the expense of the arc of the Will Turner, you know? And so in this case, it's like 
the book series is ultimately always Boone Shepherd. It's called Boone Shepherd. It's about Boone's arc. It's not to say that Promethea doesn't have her own arc or that she's not integral to where it goes, but she is ultimately a secondary character. And she has a tendency and to take center stage when she's on. That's what she does because yeah. it's who she is. And I, li- I love that about her. That's kind of why I love the character so much. But I think she kind of automatically has to kind of fall out of it. And you do sort of have to bring in other characters just to shift the dynamic a bit, just so it's not always Boone and Prometheus sniping at each other, just so, you know, you have the dynamic that Oscar kind of brings to it, the dynamic that, um, like, in the third book, there's a big part where the two of them have to work with Avery Arbogast, the um, Texan bank. Oh, from from the the first first one. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a pretty major character in the third one. And so, you know, kind of dropping him into the mix with the two of them as well. um, plays out. Yeah, like, Lord Huxley, Boone's boss, is a really major character in the third book and sort of... Okay. Because he was a really fun character in yeah, the first he, one. He has some interesting stuff in the third book, but he um yeah, he doesn't like, you know, join their little team, but he's a much more recurring presence in the third book than he was in the And then like book four is sort of like very much being a finale. Book four is kind of get the whole gang back together. Ties it all together. Whole teams, you know, you've got yeah. you've got Boone, you've got Promethea, you've got Jesse, you've got Oscar, yeah. you've got it all comes everybody. Back yeah. And that's always a fun like when you bring those disparate characters together and you're yeah, like, okay, yeah. how is this gonna work? And that maybe that might be why the particularly the ending of this book is so cool is because whilst you've got you know the the center stage of, of the ending of the book is Boone and Promethea and Addison, but what you actually have is Jesse doing all of the hard work behind the scenes, and it's such a fun moment when she comes out and she's like, "Guys, I fixed it. I did it. Don't worry yeah. about it." And you're like, "Oh, okay." And also because like I think I think it isn't because like yeah, Jesse kind of probably has the biggest successes there at the end in terms of like taking out the flying sorcerer and stuff. But what's kind of important is that part of Boone is that he's he almost is more effective as a figurehead than he is as an actual man of action. So it is that perpetual need in him to do the right thing and that perpetual need in him to try to save people even if he's going to get hurt and even if, you know, he's going to lose a finger and stuff in the process. And that is what inspires the Jessies of the world and, like, the bugs at the end where they turn around and they're like, all right, we're not going to be part of this anymore and things like that. So... So, yeah, like, I do think, you know, Boone kind of is integral to the choices that people like Jesse and stuff make. Not to say that they don't autonomously make those choices no, themselves, okay. but that he, he inspires people the same way Marvia inspired him. Right. I and think that, is... Yeah, I, I, I would agree that that's probably that's yeah. a good way of thinking about it. And it's that thing. I mean, it's, it's the thing that you talk about when it's like it, it's the privilege of lesser men to, to light the flame. For yes, flame. exactly. It's exactly yeah. that. And, but the cool thing about Boone is that he just goes around doing that all the time where he's like, I'll turn up and I'll try and solve something and I might do a pretty average job of it but the outcome is that someone will realize that you can do great things if yeah, you put exactly, your mind to it exactly and this world feels like that that that's like the 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 force that opposes all of the evil stuff that's happening is him going around trying to show people that actually you can try and make yes, a difference and almost inadvertently but like i think the big secret with boone shep and i think what sets him apart from like your doctor who's and your whatnots is that he actually just legitimately isn't very good at being a hero. <laughs> yeah, and he's that's just a bit kind rubbish. Of the most, I think, the most important thing about his character, which like sort of didn't really happen by design, but then kind of went that way, is that when you look at Doctor Who, there are moments where the Doctor's like, oh, I'm just an idiot in a box. And it's like, no, but you're not, though. You're actually not. Like, you're an incredibly capable, multi-thousand-year-old alien who can just like pretty much do anything and solve anything with a wave of the sonic screwdriver. With Boone, it's like, no, he's just a guy. Just a he's, guy who sometimes has a bike. Yeah, he's a guy who sometimes has a bike, and, you know, he's a pretty good journalist but apart from that like he's just is reasonably incompetent and yep. so is Promethea and I think that's kind of what brings those two together but it's what he stands for and what he fights for and I guess one of the big themes here is that like to be the hero you don't have to be the doctor you just have to be Boone Shepard 
Yeah. Just have to be the you guy who's be willing yourself. to do the right thing. Correct. Even if you're going to fail. And that's a nice, that's a really nice theme that I think comes through. And I think that's why the ending feels so genuine as well. Because when yeah. they have that moment where it's like the resolution, they're at the bar and they're just sort of, it, it's the first time that you spend time with these characters where they all just kind of breathe out like collectively. Yeah, and they like, I really enjoyed rereading it when I got to that bit and I was like, oh, it's because it is like up until then, there's no moment of like celebration or joy. Even at the end of the first book, it was like, yeah, we won, but like my brother died and that kind of sucked. And, and now we can't get home. And now we can't get home. So it's like they don't really celebrate their victory at the end of the first one. Yeah. Like I think there's actually a line at the end of the first one where Boone's like, I just feel hollow. I don't feel like I've won anything. Whereas at the end of the second one, like I kind of like that. And where Boone's like, oh, I just want to leave. But then he's like, you know what? I'm going to stay. Yeah. And you kind of get your little goodbyes to all the characters because I mean, Oscar and Jesse aren't in book three at all because they just, I mean, book three doesn't really have any time travel. Book three, I guess in a roundabout Boone sort of way is a lot more grounded. <laughs> yeah, um, as much as Boone can be. It still has some <laughs> absurdity. It has quite a bit of absurdity. Alfred Hitchcock's a major character, so, you know. Um, yeah, things get weird. Yeah. It's fine. But as a story, definitely, there's no flying casino. There's no flying saucers. There's none of that stuff. It's So, like, those characters kind of fall out of it. So I guess, like, The End of American Adventure is kind of like a fun little way to say sort of sayonara to the characters we spent this mm. time with. But, you know, at the end where Boone's like, not quite never. Like, we will... Yeah, we're coming yeah. back and, and... And they yeah. do. And they meet again. And, of course, they go on other adventures together. And, and it's a nice sort of... It's a nice way to sort of tip the hat and be like, okay, we, you know, we're, we're leaving you for now. We're, we're, yeah, we're going to exactly. come back to this. Exactly. And I don't know. It was just such a nice resolution to that. Particularly, like, because most of the way that we've spent time with Oscar and Jesse is, like, conflict-laden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pretty harrowing stuff or, like, really Boone's upset with them because they're being... Irrit like, the you know, Oscar's being irritating. Um... And just to have that little moment of brevity and just like you go, oh, okay, now I can like take my hat off. I can sit down and have a drink with these people and just yeah. say goodbye to this story. And I think the one of the cool things is when he's outside and you just get to enjoy him enjoying being outside in this like yeah. in the in the desert or whatever. Like after everything that's gone on. Yeah, I think it typifies um, the the what um Addison talks about, which is like that when she looks down at the desert, she sees like the future and the possibility. Yes. And yes. what you get at the end is like Boone pretty much doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like, this nice parallel where you're like, oh, they aren't actually that different. No, they're not that different. It's just how they choose to go about it. They, they have very similar goals, but it's just how they choose to go about that. Because it alludes to Addison kind of having like a rough childhood and sort of, you know, being downtrodden by, you know, the upper class and the elites and everything. And you can see that in the scene where she like shuts down the snobby people in the casino who are giving crap to Boone. But, and Boone's very much got the same thing. Like, if you look at the first book, like, before Marbia came along, like, he was completely sort of spat on by everybody at the Chronicle. He was seen as, you he know... He just started spitting back, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, like, I think Boone and Addison have a lot to relate. Because um, she's not in book three either. Like, I don't want I don't want people to finish this and think, oh, yeah, book three is going to be the return of Addison Cain. It's like, she's a major part of book four. She's not the main villain in book four, but she's a major part of book four. Um yeah, it's uh, much like the first one has a big clue about the end of the series. This one does as well. There's one. You said that a few times, and I still haven't worked it out. There's one. <laughs> there's one scene which is a really, really big clue as uh -huh. to where it's going. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's yeah. I think if you give it some thought, you'll see where it is. It's the scene that's probably the most kind of non-naturalistic and the most like okay so something that's vaguely like esoteric i'll have a look i definitely yeah, i'll probably the, be able to work it it's out, the most but... esoteric part of the book um and there's only one so okay so yeah. i'll probably yeah uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna I'm, i'll work it out i won't tell i won't but, but yeah i'll work yeah, it but, out okay if you if you're listening to this and you have read the book and you kind of have an inkling of what that scene might be it's probably exactly the one you're thinking of yeah. so have a look at it have a close read and uh and yeah there are some and there's, there's some also clues. A, and it also maybe I really shouldn't be saying this but that scene if you can figure it out is 
And then if you go back and reread the first one, this... you might have a very clear sense uh-huh. of where this is going. Interesting. Um, and I think I'll leave that that's a good, there. That's a good little tease to yeah. end on. Is there anything that, that you want to say about the book before we kind of wrap up shop um, with, with no, our look, I mean, tip? I don't know. Pretty much nothing I haven't already covered. Um, I'm really proud of the book. I um, It pretty much is what I set out to write. Um, I'm really excited for people to read it. Like, I think I just have this attachment love to American Adventure because whereas the other books more or less hit the notes I want them to hit from an early stage, this one kind of took so long. So, like, having known the amount of work that went into getting this to where it is, um, I'm very proud of it. And I'm also just kind of very happy that we got to do it, you know? Yeah. Like, there was no guarantee that we'd get a second book. And now we have. And um, and kind of in light of the Reading's Young Adult Prize um, nomination and everything, um, I think that's just going to help sort of this Boone Shepherd series get bigger and better and keep going from here. So, I mean, like, I mean, this is all in the book book's acknowledgements anyway, but I mean, I guess all I can say is like, thanks to all the people who helped this happen and helped this become a reality because as of now, we're halfway through the story and... Yeah. The rest of it looks very likely to be happening soon. So, so more to come. Yeah, more yeah. to come. Keep, Stay keep tuned. your eyes peeled. Uh, best place to get the, the book, belfrobooks.com. Yep. Um, you're on Twitter if people yep. want to follow you. Um, um, is there anything else? I, but Belfro Books are on Twitter or Facebook. You can follow I think so, yeah. all those yeah. places. Make sure you pick up a copy of the book. Uh, the audio book will be coming out soon as well, yep. so make sure you check that out on iTunes. Yes, yes, it will be. Yeah. Cool. Uh, the the audiobook for the first one, where can people get it? Um, well, actually, it's... Uh, so the audiobook for the second one, I am going to say this now. Um, the first one we released for free weekly in yep. installments. Mm-hmm. Um, with this one, that won't be the case. I mm-hmm. think the first couple of chapters will go up for free on the iTunes feed. And after that, it'll be behind a paywall. Cool. It'll be like 10 bucks or something. So it's not like you're not, you're not breaking the bank for it. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but yeah, the first one, that said, the reason I say that is that the first one is still on iTunes for free. So get it where you, you can. You can buy it. You can go out there and pay your 10 bucks and get the audiobook, or you can just get it for free and listen to it because it's get there it for free on there. iTunes. And yeah. I think we all just kind of neglected to take it off. So, well, there you go. There so you it is. Yeah. And it's in your, it's, you read it. You do amazing voices. And yeah, I, I do I a lot of, yes. Probably the second one. You've really dug yourself into a corner <sighs> with the voices. I had in that some one. tough times recording that. I'm not surprised. Oh boy. There are a lot of characters in that that are really hard to do. I had some with. regrets about my choice to take on the audiobook again. I will say that much. That's excellent. Um, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at DCM. I hate pie or the team is at DCM underscore works. Uh, thanks as always to our Patreons for making such that I can afford to be here. And thanks for having me and being on the show. Um, no, and thanks for, yeah, thanks for having me and like letting me be here and and talk about my little stories. It's always a pleasure. I've got, so as long as people keep reading it, I can keep writing it, which is fun because it's a universe and a character I love a lot. Yeah. So So, yeah. Buy the book and Gabe can write more books and everyone wins. Yeah, basically. Awesome. All right. We'll see you guys next time for more Boone stuff. Um, we are going to do a little bit of a bonus, um, recording of some stuff in a little bit so check that out on the feed as well so make sure you come back yeah stop in again (laughs) but otherwise um we'll see you guys next time